So we're arguably, in my opinion, you know, at the best point in the book of Hebrews. Like, I like this part of the book of Hebrews better than any other part of the book of Hebrews. It's really exciting to me. And so as we get going on to this, I've really kind of wrestled with how to present this and how to work through this because this is actually what we're going to be talking about today is actually a rather complicated subject in, in, the, in the beginning of chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews. And as I was praying about this, I got to thinking back to a movie that I had watched. How many of you have seen the movie, The Game, with uh, Michael Douglas and Sean Penn? Anybody seen that movie? Okay. So I'm going to recap the movie a little bit because most of you haven't seen the movie. This was a, a movie made back in 1997. And so here's the brief synopsis of the movie, The Game. Rich guy, Michael Douglas, extravagantly wealthy inside the movie, he's getting ready to have his birthday. And his, the birthday that he's getting ready to have is the same age where his dad had committed suicide. Okay? And so this is a very hard birthday for him because his father had committed suicide in that year of his life. And so very tough, right? And so he's getting ready to have that birthday. Uh, and it's just, you know, again, really hard. So his brother, who has been, you know, Sean Penn, who had some issues in the movie, kind of similar to his real life issues. Uh, Sean Penn inside the movie has, has went and he's participated in this live action game that he feels like has changed his life. And so he gets it for his brother for his birthday leading up to his birthday celebration. Right? Now, Michael Douglas's character does not want the gift. Like, I don't want to be a part of a live action game, right? And so he tells him that. And so he thinks the whole thing's off. But the reality is the game starts without Michael Douglas's knowledge. He doesn't know it, but the game started when Sean Penn approached him. Okay? So you go throughout the whole movies and you're watching this game as it's all happening. As you see characters are coming and going. You're seeing people who have major parts in the movie. And you're like, wow, this is you know, interesting, all this stuff that's going on in his life. And you kind of start getting the feeling that the game is going on whether he wants it to or not, but you're like, wow, this is a really warped game. Like, this is supposed to be a good thing, and you, it's really looking bad, right? And so this game is going on, and you're seeing all these people, and you're not really taking notice of who they are. They're not, nobody's sticking with you, you know? I mean, you just see little people, little bit parts, right? So, and you, you brush them off as unimportant, but then at the end of the movie, at the party at the end of the movie, uh, Michael Douglas ends up... Um, attempting to kill himself at the end of the movie by, by taking a, a fall through a plate through this big skylight window, and they actually have an airbag down there to catch him. So the whole thing is the psychological thriller that they knew his psychology so well they knew what he would do, right? And he falls, basically makes his grand entrance down into this party, lands right in the middle of the bag, all this stuff. He thinks he's killed his brother on the roof. His brother's alive. Blah blah blah. So I'm not telling you that the movie's the greatest and you need to go watch it, but it's an interesting movie because at the party, at the end, you're looking at this huge party, his birthday party, and you're seeing all these people that you're like, hey, I think those people were in the movie earlier on. And you have to go back and watch the movie a second time. It's one of these movies that you watch it the first time and you're trying to figure it out. 
Then you're watching it the second time and you're looking for all the people that were at the party, right? Because you're like, whoa, this is so trippy. Now, interestingly enough, Sean Penn is apparently like me. He's broke. So, because he buys his brother this present, but in the end, it makes Michael Douglas has to write the check for it because Sean couldn't afford it. So, so, but he's writing the check and the owner of the company that does this game, you're like, wait a minute. That was the dude in the airport. At one point, he's in an airport, and Michael Douglas, they've replaced his pin. They don't know it, and they've replaced his pin, and it's exploded in his pocket. They've made it explode in his pocket. So he's got ink all over him. And the owner of the company was in the airport, sitting right at the airport terminal gate with him, and he's like, you know, and you're like, whoa. And that's the one that tips you off that you really need to go back through the movie and watch it all over again. This time, paying attention for all of the places where all these people appear throughout the movie. So, I don't think, though, when Michael Douglas was at the airport, that it ever crossed his character's mind to ask, who are you? The guy that's pointing at the pen, right? It's so subtle, you know, what's going on. And So I don't think that ever crossed his mind. I mean, he just thinks this is just a casual guy that's there. He never says, well, who are you? But after, again, after you watch the movie, you have to go back and you have to start looking at it. And, and it's so trippy that not only do you start looking, you start looking at the extras. You know what an extra in a movie is, right? That's like me showing up on the scene and they're like, yeah, okay, fat white guy walks by down the thing. Yeah, that's you. Go, right? You know, and you just walk by on the screen, right? Well, you start noticing that, well, this person's an extra in this scene, but they have like a speaking part in this scene. And it's just kind of weird as you go back through and watch it. Now, why is all of this this way? It's because at the end of the movie is when you finally realize how intricately planned and orchestrated the whole series of events were. This is very similar to what we're going to be exploring today in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Now, you're probably going to have a little bit of a difficulty in the very beginning of the sermon connecting the dots... With, with what I'm talking about, the movie illustration versus what's going on here. But I promise I will come back to it and I will show you. But think about it this way, okay? It's the part that you have to go back and watch the movie the second time to see where all these people appear. That's the kicker. That's what clicks out of this passage of Scripture, okay? So let me read this. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, you may be reading from a different translation. That's okay. They're all translations. We don't speak. Anybody here? Uh, speak coin greek okay good we all have to use translations then so that's what we're doing here so i'm going to be reading from the esc for this melchizedek king of salem priest of the most high god met abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him and to him being melchizedek right and to him abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything He is first by translation of his name. This again is about Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And then he is also the king of Salem. That is the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the son of God continues as a priest forever. See how great this man uh, who's was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils 
And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the, in the law to take tithes or tenths from the people. That is, from their brothers. Though all, These also are descended from Abraham. But this man who, who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. He blessed Abraham. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, and in the other case, by the one of whom it is testified he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. I want you to ask the question, Melchizedek, who are you? Let's pray. Father, we want to know what you have to say about Melchizedek. You point out right here in Hebrews that this Melchizedek character maybe has a lot more importance than we've ever thought of. You point out that maybe he's like the owner of the company inside the airport pointing at his pocket. And so we ask you, speak to us through your Holy Spirit today. Challenge us to grow in you. And Father, no matter what happens today, let us walk away knowing that you love us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, amen. Now I want to go back and I want to tack in the, the last verse of chapter 6 before we go on. Because why are we talking about Melchizedek, right? Here's what it says in verse 20 of chapter 6. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, right? Now, the author of Hebrews is claiming in chapter 7, that Jesus has a right to the priesthood because of his relation to Melchizedek. This is interesting because we know, if we read our Old Testament, that, that the priesthood is passed down through the lineage of the tribe of Levi. And specifically, the high priesthood is passed down through the sons of Aaron, right? And yet the author of Hebrews is claiming that Jesus has a right to the priesthood because of who he is in relation to Melchizedek. Now, why is this important that the author is pointing this out? Because the author is acknowledging the problem of the hereditary priesthood. Right? What tribe was Jesus descended from? Somebody yell it out. Say it louder. Who? Was he from Levi? He was from the tribe of Judah. Right? And so you're looking at this, the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, right? The author of Hebrews didn't write on their own accord. They wrote as the Spirit of God led them to write. Writes acknowledging, I know that he doesn't have the proper lineage. Right? And verse 4 he does this by pointing out that it's in relation to Melchizedek that Jesus can do this because he points out that Melchizedek was a great priest and Abraham affirmed this by tithing to him. Right? Abraham brings a, a God offering, a tithe, his tithe to God. He gives it to Melchizedek. And we're going to talk a lot more about that next week. Okay? This is pre-law. People who say that tithing is a law requirement... Do not understand tithing at all. This is thousands of years before the law was given. Tithing is about our heart. 
but we're going to talk about that next week. And I don't preach on money that often, right? I'm just, this is where we're at in the book. So that'll come up next week. So I digress. Let me get back in here, all right? Verse 5. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is their brothers, right? The Levites who were a part of the priesthood are commanded to receive those tithes. Here, you're supposed to take the tithes in. Don't start a problem about it. You know, just do this. And so, like, the whole receiving of the offerings to God is a part of the priestly function. And here's Melchizedek doing part of the priestly function that God has obviously ordained him to do according to the author of Hebrews. Now, verses 6 through 10, and I know I'm moving kind of quick because I want to get to the better part of this, right? Verses 6 through 10 affirms that God, that only God's representative can receive tithes in this manner. And yet Melchizedek, who was not a descendant of Abraham, was able to not only receive, receive the tithes, but according to verses 6 and 7, he was able to bless Abraham because of it. Abraham brings him a tithe and Melchizedek blesses him. Now, I, I love this for so many reasons because Melchizedek appears in Genesis chapter 14, I believe. Right? And if I'm wrong on the chapter, forgive me. But it's really this, it just blows me away. And you're going to read this this week in your homework about Melchizedek. Okay? But like I said, it blows me away. Melchizedek receives a tithe, and Melchizedek blesses Abraham by setting before him two things, wine and bread, the communion elements. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I said everything when we were doing during worship, that everything in the scriptures points to one thing. Jesus. Melchizedek is offered a tithe by Abraham and he blesses him by giving him those symbols of faith that we've come to believe in, that we've come to say represents the, the, the Christ that was given for us, Christ's body which was broken for us, Christ's blood which was spilled for us, the national symbol of Israel, the Passover elements, was actually the symbol of a crucified and risen Jesus. Can I get a witness? Amen? And this is a neat thing. This is why I love this part of the book of, of Hebrews so much, because it's like, wow, God is really cool. Amen? Right? And He blesses him. Now, the author, I believe, in my opinion, that the author successfully argues that Melchizedek's receiving of tithes and subsequent ability to bless Abraham establishes his priesthood sufficiently. That's the author's argument. He says, he, he goes through this whole thing about, you know, this is part of the priestly function, and then and Melchizedek blessed him, and we know that the superior is the only one that can bless the the one that's inferior. And so it goes through this whole thing and he's talking about the supremacy of Melchizedek. And so I think he does a really good job arguing this. Now, you may not feel that way and that's okay. That's why we're going to give you homework later on for you to read to wrestle with some of these concepts. But this is important for a couple of reasons. Okay? This is really important to our faith for a couple of reasons. The first reason 
is that it sets a precedence for the high priest coming from somewhere other than the tribe of the Levites. This is critical. This is critical to our faith because, we, because the author of Hebrews is claiming that Jesus is our great high priest and intercessor. And he's claiming this contrary to them, Israel believing that the priesthood had to come through only through the Levites. And he's saying, I know that this looks like a problem. But in reality, there was someone who didn't have his right descent thousands of years ago who was priest of God Most High, who had the priestly office. This isn't a new thing. God has always done this. This has always been a part of God's plan. When we started the book of Hebrews back in September, I said to you, the Old Testament and the New Testament are actually far more similar to one another than they are different. That what the Old Testament says applies to Christians today in the same exact way that it applied to the Jews. And that it applied to everybody who's ever lived. And we know this Because it tells us in the New Testament, nobody was ever made righteous by keeping the law. The Jews misunderstood what Jesus or what God was saying through the prophets. They thought, oh, our righteousness will be established by keeping the law. But we're told in the New Testament under the inspiration of the Spirit that no one was made righteous by the law. There's no one who got to heaven any other way than through Jesus. You say, well, what of Old Testament saints? Are there any people from the Old Testament that are there? Absolutely. They had their faith in the coming Messiah who had not yet appeared. And God redeemed them with His eyes looking at the cross, knowing what was coming, and knowing the faith they had in this Messiah whom they had not yet seen. And He talks about that in the book of Hebrews. About them having their faith in the promise though they hadn't yet received it. We talked about that already in the first six chapters, remember? And those of us who have come along after the cross, God's looking back at it. See, the thing that's so cool about this book, and what's so cool about happening here is that God is yet again affirming that Jesus has always been the central message of the Bible. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Him. Now, Again, I've already mentioned this. Jesus is from Judah, which is technically the wrong tribe. But it's still acceptable by God's standard because God has affirmed this in his past actions. Melchizedek was not from the proper tribe. The second reason it causes us that this is important is because it causes us to have to stop and consider who Melchizedek actually is. This is kind of like the movie that I was talking about in the beginning. We're, we're seeing kind I know this isn't the end of the book, but kind of we're at the, we're at the end of the movie, right? We see the owner getting the check, and you're like, oh, I saw him somewhere else. This causes us to go back and look and, and, and go see what Melchizedek is about. And who is, who is Melchizedek, this guy who had this bit part in Genesis chapter 14? 
Who is he? And as we go back and we read over it, we realize that this cameo appearance of Melchizedek actually has enormous implications for our faith. What kind of implications? Last week we talked about promises. Amen? Anybody remember that? Amen? Like if God makes you a promise, He's got to keep it, got to get a witness. Amen? Okay. Do you know that God's been making these promises since the foundation of the world? This has all been promised based on the person and work of Jesus ever since the foundation of the world. It's all been about Jesus. The first prophecy of the coming of Christ isn't in Genesis chapter 14. It's actually in Genesis chapter 3. On your belly you shall go, and I shall put enmity between you and the woman, and between her seed and your seed. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God the Father speaks of the coming Messiah immediately after the fall. Guys, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Let that sink into your heart. It's all about Jesus. This has enormous implications for our faith. But, but let's, just, let's just talk through some of this stuff. We're going to really pay attention to the first three verses now. Because that's where I really want to dig into. Verses 1 through 3 show us that Melchizedek is more than a simple priest or a king. He's both. He's both. Right? For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. King. Priest. He's a priest king. Now, this may not seem hugely important to you until we wrestle what it means to be a priest king in a biblical context. Okay? It's important to wrestle with it in a biblical context. In the ancient world, it was not unheard of at all for a king to be considered the priest of his God over his people. However, this was never a practice that was condoned inside of Israel. This was not something that was acceptable inside of Israel. God wasn't okay with it. I want to give you the example of, of a time when it attempted to happen inside of the nation of Israel. I'm going to read you some scripture. I'm going to tell you where it's from in just a second. Saul was still at Gilgal. And the people, this is Saul the king. This is Old Testament Saul, not Saul who became Paul. And, and all the people followed him trembling. And he waited seven days. So he's waiting for Samuel to come up, right? He waited for seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But, but Samuel didn't show up to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said... Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, this is something only priests could do. Okay? Behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel, I could just see Samuel. Oh, Saul. Dude, seriously, what have you done? Right? He says, what have you done? And Saul said, well, when I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself 
So I crossed the line and forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, to the king, Oh, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is out of 1 Samuel 13, verses 7b through 14. 7b means halfway through verse 7. Okay? Samuel's like, dude, seriously? You just, you just got yourself fired. Your descendants won't sit on the throne. You just got canned because you tried to be king and priest. This was not a normal part. But yet in Genesis chapter 14, we see a time where God blesses this. The only exception that I'm aware of inside of Scripture is Melchizedek, who was both priest and king. And he was blessed by God to be that. Well, actually, there might be two exceptions in Scripture. No, as I think about it, maybe it's just one. I don't know. Let me explain the the possible second one to you, right? Because maybe it's not two exceptions. Maybe it's just one. You see, Melchizedek is no ordinary king. According to verse 2, his name, Melchizedek, literally means king of righteousness. Pop quiz. Answer it fast and loud. Who's the king of righteousness? Jesus. Wait, wait, say that again. Who's the king of righteousness? Okay, like you mean it. Who's the king of righteousness? Okay. His name literally means king of righteousness. Furthermore, Melchizedek is the king of Salem, and according to this verse, which means king of peace. Now, I don't know, but who's the king of peace? Come on, church, who's the king of peace? Do you you see where I'm going with this? I, I don't know, maybe you do or maybe you don't, right? Now, if the author of Hebrews had stopped here, we might say, okay, there's two priest kings. Melchizedek from the Old Testament and Jesus from the New Testament because we know that Jesus is the king who will sit and rule on David's throne forever and ever, right? And we also know that the Bible says that he's our great high priest and intercessor, right? So here we got a priest king. And okay, so there was two times this happened if we stopped there. But guys, the author doesn't stop there. He goes on to say some stuff that just blows my mind. You know, it's like that whole mind blown, right? He says in in, in the next verse that Melchizedek has no father, no mother, no family tree, no beginning, no end, and and instead he exists eternally. That's what it says. Verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Let me just ask you a question. Who's got no earthly father or mother? Come on, church. Who's got no earthly mother or father? Who's got no family tree? Who's got no beginning of life? Because he's a self-existent one. He's God. Who's got no end of days? 
whoa, really? Melchizedek might be Jesus? What? Really? Preacher, are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. I'm serious. What our biblical author appears to be arguing is that Melchizedek and Jesus are actually one and the same person. This is what the author clears, I mean, seems to be arguing. It gets better, by the way. This is what theologians refer to as a Christophany. Okay, so everybody say it with me. Christophany. Let's do it again. Christophany. Okay? This is the $5 word for Jesus appearing before he was born. Okay? It's what we call a Christophany. A Christophany is a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus Christ in the historical record of the Bible. That's what a Christophany is. Okay? A.B. Simpson, the founder of the CNMA, who's actually up there in the sound booth right now. Hey, A.B. For those of you who don't know Bill McCandless, the guy with the bushy beard and bald head that looks like the picture in the hallway, you'll see. It's A.B. So, I'm never going to stop, Bill, because your beard looks better than mine. I digress. Let me get back to what I'm talking about here. A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, of which we're a part, wrote a multi-volume commentary that is chock full of teaching exploring these types of events. It's called the Christ in the Bible. And it's chock full of teaching on pre-occurrences of Christ and types and all of these foreshadowings and all these things. I mean, he talks about Abraham taking up Isaac. He talks about the foreshadowing of that. He talks about all the places where it appears that Jesus uh, showed up in bodily form. This is totally normal Orthodox Christian teaching. I'm not saying that every Christian that ever lived believed this. And I'm not saying that you have to believe this to go to heaven. But I'm saying there's a lot of solid evangelical Christians born again who we're going to see in heaven who believe that this is what's happening inside the Scriptures. And our founder was one of them. But you say, okay, okay. Just because Simpson believed in these things doesn't make them true. Good point. Good point. Thank you for making that point. You're right. However, it appears the author of Hebrews is actually claiming that these these is factual by who he is describing Melchizedek to be. But he doesn't stop with verse 3. He actually says something even crazier. Or more crazy. I don't know which one's the right word. I make up words all the time. In verse 8, he claims that the tithes received by Levites are received by mortal men, but that the tithe received by Melchizedek was received by the one of whom it is testified he lives. Whoa! Like my mind was already blown and it blew up again. Do you see that in verse 8? In the one case, ties are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by the one of whom it is testified he lives. He's only, he's only talking about two cases. He's talking about the Levites getting tithes, and he's talking about Melchizedek getting tithes. So either he's saying that all the Levites are still alive, or he's saying Melchizedek is, te- is testified that he lives. I mean, the author of Hebrews basically comes right out and says it without saying it. Melchizedek is Jesus. This blows me away. I'm like, really? Really? 
I, I, wanna ex- I just want to explain the implications of this. The implication of this is that Jesus has always been present. He's always been present. The Trinity of the Godhead is not God the Father created everything and then decided to create the Holy Spirit and Jesus with Him. No, He is the Father. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Right? These are huge implications that Jesus has been present the whole time. Especially when we consider the promises that we talked about last week. And when God gives you a promise, He's going to back it up. Because Jesus has been walking through this the whole time. He's been present. He's been the intercessor. He's been the one that interceded. And it's going to blow you away when we look at homework this week. Because I'm going to give you six passages of Scripture that I believe point to Jesus physically presenting Himself in the Old Testament. I mean, these are huge things. So what does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? It means, for me at least, that I can move forward in great confidence, knowing that not only does God have this since the cross, He's always had this thing. Let me tell you why the book of Revelation does not scare me. Now, you may be a pre-trib or you may think we're going to get raptured before the tribulation period happens. And if you do, that's fine. You can be a part of our church. You can believe that. Me, I don't believe that. And I'm entitled to be wrong about it if I'm wrong. Amen? Okay? You know why I don't mind believing that? Because I'm not scared of the tribulation. Because my God has me. Because when I go and read the Old Testament, I see the, the Jews went through ten plagues. And I see that Jesus, who's foreshadowed in the Passover, had him. He had his hand over him. Right? I, I see Noah, who was watching the whole world be destroyed around him and his family. God had him. God had him on an ark. Right? I see Daniel, who was thrown in a lion's den. And my God still had him. I see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into a fiery furnace that was heated to seven times its normal operating temperature. People were getting close to try to heat it up and dying from exposure, just being close trying to fan the flame. And I see these people thrown inside and then live through it because my God still has them. This builds confidence in me. Knowing that God has always been involved in this. And He will continue to be involved in this. And when we're walking through these trials. When we're walking through the loss of job. When we're walking through the sickness. When we're walking through all this stuff. My God has still got you in His hand. And He's going to hold you. It may not turn out the way you want it to. The promise may not look like what you thought it would look like. I am sure that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not figure they were going in that furnace. Because they said, our God's going to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow the knee to that idol. I am sure Daniel wasn't thinking he was getting thrown in a lion's den. But even if the lions get me, so what? Do you know in the early church that Christianity was illegal in Rome? 
and people were being martyred for their faith. And Paul, in the middle of this, with an evil government, says, submit to the government. Why? Because even if I die, my God still has me in the palm of his hand. They're not living for this little short time here on earth. They're living for the fact that God has got me and he is holding me. Church, you got to get that. You got to get a hold of that. This is the Jesus that we serve. My God is bigger than your cancer. My God is bigger than your addiction. My God is bigger than your broken heart. My God is bigger than all of these things. You throw your problem at my God and I'm going to tell you how big my God is. Because that's what the Bible tells me. I just watched something that Allie Montgomery posted on Facebook. One of the IHOP churches that one of their worship leaders passed away. His seven-year-old daughter gets up on stage, preaches a little mini-sermon about there's going to be a day. Or no, sorry, his grand, it was his granddaughter. There's going to be a day. She stands there, not a tear in her eye. Says, we're going to all see Pap again if we're born again. There's coming a day. This little seven-year-old girl gets it, guys. Did she miss her Pap? Absolutely. But she said, my God is bigger. My God is bigger than all of this. This has huge, huge implications for our faith. This should give us courage to move forward. But there's something else that it could do as well. This should change how we read the Old Testament. Namely, as we read the Old Testament, we should be looking for how Jesus was involved back then. See, as a New Testament believer, I don't say the Old Testament doesn't apply to me. I say I read the Old Testament in light of the New. I go back in and I say, okay, Jesus, he came, he lived, he died, and he resurrected, he saved me. And I'm going to go read it in light of that. And it helps me to understand those things. I don't look at just the New Testament and say, well, that's all I need to read is the New Testament. That's like coming in halfway through the movie. Like, I'm like, okay, I know how the movie is. Let me go back. It's like going and watching the game, right? I got to the end. I see all the characters. I'm like, whoa, I got to go back and read this again and see, wow, look at how Jesus is involved. Look at how God was unfolding his plan. Look at this. I mean, I go through and reading the Psalms and things like that, and I'm like, oh, this is so crazy. David, or this psalmist, or that psalmist is writing these Psalms, and I mean, it's totally about the life of Jesus. This is blowing my doors off. Wow. God, I mean, faith is welling up in me because God is so awesome that He's proven time and again He knows the beginning from the end. And so I read the Scriptures knowing that it all applies. And I go, wow, my God is bigger than all of this. Guys, Jesus didn't go to the cross because God couldn't stop it. Jesus went to the cross because God sent Him there. Amen? We didn't accidentally get saved. God did it on purpose. Amen. Amen. No, seriously. Amen. Amen. He didn't accidentally get, Jesus didn't get duped. Jesus told him in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, put the sword away. I could call 12 legions of angels right now, buddy. This is part of God's plan. 
God knew. Let this build faith in you. Let this change how you read the scriptures. Let this change what goes on in your life. I want to start you off in this new way of reading the scriptures by giving you six places that theologians widely agree are Christophanies. That's pre-occurrences of Jesus Christ. Honework. Intentionally spelled H-O-N-E because it's like sharpening a sword. We're honing ourselves. Right? You don't have to read these, but I don't want you to take my word for anything I preach. That's just the kind of preacher I am. I could be wrong. So I want you to go see yourself. Genesis chapter 14. Verses 17 through 24. Now this one is Melchizedek's story. This one's Melchizedek's story. Tuesday. Genesis 32, 22 through 32. This is where Jacob wrestles with God. Now, if you know the name of what Jacob means, yell it out. Deceiver or heel catcher. He wrestles with God in in Genesis here, and he receives a new name, Israel. If you know what Israel means, yell it out. Redeemed. Israel means redeemed. So the deceiver wrestles with God and gets redeemed. Hmm. Now who's got the power to redeem? I don't know. Just wrestle with that. Wednesday, Joshua 5, 10 through 15. This is one of my favorite ones. I love this one. Joshua's getting ready. He's walking out in front of the, uh, the army of Israel. They're getting ready to go over to Jericho. He's walking along. He sees a man with a sword. He says to the guy, you for us or are you against us? The guy answers this with the greatest answer in the world. No. <laughs> are you for us or are you against us? I, I'm thinking he's going to answer for or against. He goes, no. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Are you for me or are you against me? He said, no, I'm in charge. And what does Joshua do? He worships him, the scriptures say. Now, I don't know. None of God's agents ever, ever, ever let themselves receive worship except for one. That was the God made manifest in the flesh, Jesus. And he accepts worship. Thursday, Daniel 3, 8 through 30. The angel of the Lord delivers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. There's a fourth person in there. I think that's Jesus. Friday, Gideon makes offerings to the Lord, and he recognizes after the fact in Judges 6, 11 through 24, that he was face to face with the Lord, in whose presence no man can live, the Bible says. And he says, it's okay, you'll live. He didn't say, oh, I'm not, I'm not the Lord. You're all right. No, he said, no, it's fine. You'll live. And then Saturday, another one of my favorite ones, Exodus 14, 1 through 31. Pay attention to verse 19. We always talk about the cloud of pillar by day, or the pillar of, ah, you know what I'm trying to say, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But that is not what led the children of Israel out of Egypt. When you see in verse 19, there was something that was out in front of that. The angel of the Lord which I believe is Jesus leading the nation of Israel out of bondage. He steps in between the one who is going to come after him. It says there in verse 19, and the angel of the Lord went around behind and got between them while they were able to go on through. 
Now, like I said, you don't have to believe me. You don't have to believe what I'm saying. And you could go read these things and you could say, eh, they're foreshadowings of Jesus, but I don't see them being Jesus. That's cool. Even if they're foreshadowings. Still pretty awesome. Still pretty awesome. Still says that God's involved. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way you're working in our lives. We thank you for what you're doing inside of each one of us. And we pray that you would glorify yourself in our midst. Lord, help us to understand these Christophanies. Help us to understand the implications for our faith. And help us to know that you are the God who loves us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, Amen.